Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, a new plan which could fundamentally change the way our kids are taught to read. What I want to say about a whole language approach is that we do need to question it. Then, if you thought the big slip in our literacy rates was bad, whew, wait till you see our capital city. And the new Dean of Dunedin School of Medicine has been watching the political debate over the Māori Health Authority. So the idea that a party would be framing it as existing to meet a political purpose, I think it suggests some soul-searching may be required. You know, we might just be on the cusp of one of the biggest shifts in New Zealand education in decades. Earlier this month, the government released what it has described as a radical plan to overhaul reading, writing and maths education. And usually, you'd be a bit sceptical of that term. Radical. Really? But actually, when it comes to literacy, given New Zealand's history, that term might be spot on. For decades now, literacy standards for Kiwi kids have been sliding. In 1970, we were among the best in the world. But the latest progress in international reading literacy study, which is considered by many as the international benchmark, ranked New Zealand 9- and 10-year-olds at 33rd in the world. My colleagues and I have, have long argued that, that an important contributing factor is the way in which children are taught how to read. And that has really been misguided uh, in New Zealand and quite heavily entrenched for 30 or 40 years. Look at that. It's important to point out there is not yet scientific consensus on the best way to teach literacy. Opinion is polarised. Many educators think the traditional so-called whole language approach is best. Put them together. Damn. But many researchers are increasingly arguing that a more effective way of teaching kids focuses on the relationship between spoken language and how it's represented on a page. I hope you will forgive the demonstration. There's a reason I'm on the tally and not in the classroom, but I want to help you better understand the ideological divide over the best way to teach literacy. The traditional whole language approach encourages kids to use a story's context, their own experiences, and visual cues to work out a missing word. A structured literacy approach focuses much more on the text itself, the sounds we make as part of our language and their relationship with words and letters. In practice, that means several things, including a keen focus on the use of phonics. Looking at a letter and working out its corresponding sound, th, blending sounds together to make a word, flapped, and working out how that word corresponds to a sentence. Like I say, there's a reason I'm not in classrooms. The debate over the best way to teach is highly contentious. Many educators still believe a whole language approach suits a majority of kids. New friends and Pokemon. But in particular, parents of kids with dyslexia say tutoring using phonics has been transformational. Snakes. But so far in New Zealand, the education system has largely stuck with the status quo, the so-called whole language approach. I see it as basically an ideological issue and that runs counter to what science has been finding over the last 20, 30, even 40 years. 
Part of that ideology could be informed by the pedagogical legacy of Dame Marie Clay. New Zealand educators are introducing a special program that gives astonishing results. The New Zealand educational literacy researcher who founded the Reading Recovery Program and helped to implement it around the world. I climbed into the front seat. Reading Recovery helps young children who struggle with reading. And although reading recovery advocates believe it's transformational, in recent years, the New South Wales Department of Education concluded the programme was largely ineffective and its use in New Zealand schools has been dropping too. I think many schools have voted with their feet, possibly because of the cost of running reading recovery, but also because I think many principals have correctly identified that many children do not benefit from reading recovery. And as research has shown at the University of Auckland and the University of Canterbury, those children who are successful in reading recovery often don't maintain the gains downstream. Welcome to Ready to Read Phonics Plus, the start of the pathway to reading. But as we said, this could all be about to change. The government has announced a new action plan which could fundamentally change the way Kiwi kids are taught to read. This action plan is filled with a lot of bureaucratic speak, but there are phrases in here which caught our attention, suggesting an impending shift from the traditional whole language model to a new structured literacy approach. If that's the case, it means a major change in the way many of our teachers teach. Professor James Chapman says the reason literacy standards in New Zealand have been slipping is predominantly because of the way we teach our kids. Do you agree? I think that's part of it. I think that when he says predominantly, yes, it's a big reason, but I think that there are other reasons too. I've said before around teacher confidence is a big part of it, uh, and just not knowing latest research, not being able to keep up to date, the teacher support that they're given, I think that's all part of it. There's a, there's a myriad of reasons. Uh, okay, but is that the main reason? I think it probably is the main reason, but I will also say that home backgrounds does show in research that that's bringing a lot to the, the table as well. So we do have to take that into consideration. Is New Zealand literacy today in line with the best scientific evidence? I think it's moving that way. I think there are elements of New Zealand's literacy, for example, the Better Start literacy approach that we've got working with our new entrance teachers and year ones, I believe is in line with the, the best research that's out there. I think that we're moving in that direction with our literacy action plans and our strategy that we've got, uh, but we, we have some way to go. So just to be clear, it's not in line with the best scientific evidence? Elements of it are. There are some that are not. Which are not? So I think for a long time in this country we have used research that's probably out of date now uh, that informs our practice. We have to be ensuring that we have the most up-to-date approach and using the most up-to-date research. And that's what the strategy, the literacy strategy is about, is about ensuring that we do have the most up-to-date research and that it is being used within our schooling system. So to be clear, what part of our literacy education at the moment is not in line with the best scientific evidence? I want to be a little bit careful when I say that because it makes it sound that we're not providing good literacy for our young people if I single out 
absolute but specifics. you've got something in mind though. Yes I do, I do have something in mind. I know over the last 18 months that we have been working through with the experts around what the best approach to literacy teaching in this country looks like, which is exactly why we have implemented the Better Start Literacy approach. Now that approach is based on uh, the science of reading. It has been developed over 10 years by Dr Gail Gillen and her team at Canterbury University and has showing amazing results within its first 18 months. So just to be clear, that is a structured literacy approach? It is a structured literacy approach. It's one that has been developed for a New Zealand context though. One thing that I'm very clear about is that with research we don't just want to do a lift and shift of what happens overseas. We want to ensure that we've got a New Zealand context right at the centre of what we're doing. Okay, just to go back to that question though, you said you had something in mind when it comes to our literacy education that is not in line with the best scientific evidence. So, so what have you had So what, what we are doing over the next uh, few months is developing a common practice model. Now what I don't want to do is in sort of presuppose what that common practice model is looking like. But we do know that working with the sector, working with the experts and working with the latest research that we will bring that together so that we will develop that common practice right, model. Right, I'm going to pull you up on that line again. You said you had something in mind. To the best of your knowledge at the moment, would you say that a whole language learning approach is not in line with the best scientific evidence as it stands today? What I want to say about a whole language approach is that we do need to question it. I, I believe that there are certainly, uh, it's worthy of questioning at this point in time because it has been developed and used on very dated research as we stand at this point in time. Right. That's a pretty clear message. Is that what you had in mind, the whole language learning approach? That's exactly what we had in mind. And we have signalled that already with what we are starting to see roll out in schools now. Do children learn by, by, by guessing and by using visual cues, looking at pictures? Actually, to be fair, some children do, and some children that's okay for, but what is happening in this system is, at the moment is too many children and too many young people are missing out and being underserved by the system, and that is not good enough. We need an approach that is going to work for all children and all young people, and so that's my aim, is that we can do that, but we have to go back to that latest research, talk to the experts, uh, talk to Professor James Chapman, for example, talk to Dr Gail Gillen, talk to all of those people and ensure that we're bringing all of those elements into that common practice model. This is an incredibly contentious subject. Are you prepared for the backlash? Absolutely I'm prepared for the backlash. The achievement of our young people and their life choices that they're able to make through the uh, academic abilities that they are able to gather through school is too important for us and too important for me not to be prepared for that backlash. We need to make uh, decisions that are based on their success in life and put them at the centre of any decisions that we make. I want to take a closer look at, the, at where literacy education stands at the moment in New Zealand. So Ontario in Canada has held a public inquiry on the right to read and one of the key recommendations was to remove the so-called cueing system where kids look for meaning, context and then visual cues as they try and work out words in a sentence. I know that Australian states have scrapped the cueing system. Is it still being used in New Zealand schools today? Currently it's still being used in, in New Zealand schools today but something that we need to do is help our teachers understand that methods that they may have used and may have found good for them once upon a time may not necessarily be good right now. 
we can't just make that shift though and expect teachers to come on board with that shift. You know, having been a teacher myself, I understand that if that's done too quickly without the right supports, I will go back to what I've always known. So we have to ensure that we're supporting our teachers to transition away from methods that they may have always used into the most current methods available too. How do you do that? Uh, it's through professional development, it's through having the right supports that sit around them, it's having the right resources that sit around them as well. I mean, these are thousands of teachers and you are asking many of them to fundamentally change their ideology when it comes to the process by which they teach literacy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I haven't worked with a teacher who doesn't want the best and to be the best and it's to help them understand what the best looks like. Mm. Um, it is a big ask, but again, our kids are too important to get this wrong. The action plan renews a commitment to the reading recovery program. Why? That's a really interesting part of this because number one, I think the name reading recovery hangs people up. I think that they get really tied up with the fact of what they've seen reading recovery to be. But what the Ministry of Education are doing is transitioning away f or transitioning the reading recovery program. Uh, into something that's more aligned to a structured literacy approach. Now, I've visited schools who have been early adopters of the structured literacy approach, and every single one of them has said to me that we still do need some sort of remedial program. So that tells me that we can't just get rid of a remedial program. We need to transition it. But the name does hang people up, and that's something I've been thinking about, is what can we do to get people over that hurdle? What can we do? Change the name, maybe. And it, again, I'm not presupposing what might happen here, but we can have a fundamental look and make sure that the changes are solid changes that are in line with what we're teaching in the classroom. OK, so, so we've had a programme that's been running for decades that has been exported international, that, internationally that fundamentally works around the whole language learning principle. This is reading recovery. But you were suggesting in order to keep reading recovery, we change the name and we ch change the pedagogy by which children are taught. We fundamentally change the programme. We're fundamentally changing the programme, but I'm not saying Why that... Why not just scrap it? Well, then we lose the resourcing that goes with but it. Start when start it we again, a... to start completely Well, we fresh. need a remedial programme. So, yeah, it's, it's, when it says that we're going to keep reading recovery, it means we're going to keep a remedial programme. Page 17 of the action plan says flexibility in the implementation models will ensure leaders can adapt and design their change process to local needs. So the action plan makes clear that schools will still have significant scope to pursue their own teaching methods. Why, if the scientific evidence says we should be teaching kids one way, would we give schools an opportunity to teach them by another? It's actually the principles that sit underneath that are the most important. So it's those, um, you said yourself about the pedagogy that sits there, it's those principles that are important. I have seen two different structured literacy approaches working that come from the same principles but look quite different. Mm. We want to give schools the ability to be able to work with what works for them. A student in Northland is going to be very different from what a student brings to school in the middle of Southland. Uh, we want to be able to make sure that they can bring their own flavour to it. I'm very aware that I do not want to see cookie cutter models right across this country. Mm. I do not want to see a school not being able to bring their own flavour to their literacy sessions. I think that would kill it for kids. Does that mean schools will have an option to 
dismiss structured literacy in favour of a whole language learning approach? The common practice model will be the essence of what every school will have to adopt and we will be supporting them through that with the professional learning development. That will be based on the principles of good literacy teaching. You'll be receiving advice on the pathway forward uh, through a consultation group. Do you intend to have representatives in that consultation group who support a whole language learning approach as opposed to a structured literacy approach? I think that's actually necessary. I think that people need to be able to have this debate together and I think that we need to be able to bring people from different pathways there that can actually, actually have the debate. I think this has probably been long overdue at that expert mm. panel level. We've heard it out in society, mm. we've heard the different groups having these arguments against each other, I actually want to see them come to the table and have that around the table as we develop this. You know, I don't think they're too far apart in some respects. Yes, they might be with the principles that they're bringing, but they want the best for the learners. And so to have that debate, to bring the research to the table, to bring the experts to the table, I think they need to be there. I agree they have shared goals, but it's incredibly contentious. Yeah. And it sounds like you've made up your mind. I haven't made up my mind. I just want to base what we develop on the best mm. evidence that's available right here, right now. And as it stands, that would support a structured literacy approach. I haven't seen any evidence that shows me anything different to that at this point in time. There have been some highly publicised examples in the last two weeks of people with debatable moral standings deciding to run for local school boards. Should there be more control over who can run for a board of trustees? Look, it really has concerned me and it's something that I've thought a lot about in the last few, few days, to be fair. I've only two weeks ago had a conversation with Lorraine Kerr, who's the president of the New Zealand School Trustees Association about how do we get people to understand governance and, and grow their governance ability at that school level. I think there is work that we need to do in that space. I think we need to uh, look closely at the legislation and around the interpretation of the legislation as it stands now about who can stand. We are also in the development with School Trustees Association in a code of conduct for Board of Trustees members. I believe that that code of conduct is the work that we need to be pushing into strongly here because it does concern me. Okay, would a code of conduct stop someone who is considered by many to be a white supremacist from running for a school board? Well, that's something that I want to investigate further. I have actually but asked would a code of conduct only apply, Sorry to interrupt. Would a code of conduct only apply to people who have already been appointed to a school board? Well, that's an interesting point in itself because I have asked how can we use the code to uh, look at what people stand for when they are standing for the board. So does the code only apply for when people get onto the board or can we look at it earlier in the process as well? Having said that, I um, have asked my officials for advice in this area and I am waiting for that advice to come back and I will be taking that quite seriously because I am concerned about it. Is the school board model as it stands a danger to education? I think there's lots of positives around the school board model. Look, I was a principal and I've had many wonderful boards, but again, many of the people that stood for my boards mm. came on there not understanding governance and picked that up along the way. Wouldn't it be great if we could get people upskilled before they stood for the boards of trustees? Is the model as it stands a danger to education? 
I think there are elements of it that we do need to investigate and that's why we are looking at the code of conduct. That is an area that we have actually looked at and identified that need, work needs to be done. Is that a yes? No, I don't think it is. I'm going to be pretty solid there and say no, I don't think it is. I think that there are elements that we need to be looking at to make it even stronger. Should white supremacists be allowed on school boards? People that have uh, ideologies of hate shouldn't be allowed on school boards. You've recently launched your truancy plan. Data shows more than 100,000 Kiwi kids are chronically truant. And obviously, COVID-19 has played a significant role in those numbers. But even before the pandemic, the number of children who were considered to be chronically truant was increasing. So why has it taken Labor five years of being in government to get to this point? This is work that we've been doing since even last term that we were in, uh, is been looking at how we can impact on the attendance areas. But I think COVID, the work was sort of put to the side with COVID because we had other pressing needs that were hitting us in the face right at that time. Uh, but really now we're looking at how we can be a bit more urgent because, gee, those numbers are not good. Do you know how many truancy officers there are in New Zealand? Now that's a really interesting question because schools appoint their own truancy officers and so we know how much money is being spent across on the, in that area. Um, and I'm going to say, I should say attendance officers because we don't really use the word truancy. Uh, so we know that, but they can, they can appoint or have as many in that, within that budget as they want, as they need. So you don't know? No, I don't. Shouldn't we know? No, not necessarily, because there are... But if you're are... a truancy action plan, wouldn't it be prudent yeah, to no. find out how many attendance officers are in place? So you're assuming that attendance officers might be the best way for each area to get kids back to school. Each area no, will... It's assuming it might them... be valuable to have some basic understanding as to yeah, how many attendance officers are actually operating. But that's not what schools tell me. Schools tell me to bring this closer to them and that they will, they, what, as it used to be. So back in 2013 when I was a school principal, mm. we had attendance officers that were closer to us and in some cases we didn't need attendance officers but we had the models that we could design that were closer to us and then that all changed and that was taken further away under the then government. My models did not look like the school across the other side of Tauranga, for example, because what suited us was very different to there. Your question presupposes that we only should have attendance officers as our main answer. I would have argued that with you back then as a school, former school principal. I wanted something that worked for me. I didn't want someone else telling me how I guess, that was I guess going my, to work. My, my question is just why we would dedicate tens of millions of dollars to this problem if we don't fully understand the problem in the first place and understand what measures are already in place. So the attendance service themselves will they will report and do report back to the Ministry of Education. So they have their key performance indicators and they will report back on those key performance indicators. But what we do know is that they are too far away in many cases from the schools themselves. So they don't have a great understanding of, the, well this is what the schools tell me, a great understanding of the school's communities. School communities who are operating attendance services within their communities like in Porirua for example, in Kawaro in South Auckland, who have been able to put their flavour onto this, tell me that they know their issues really well and the data is backing that up to say that they're able to get their kids back to school in a timely manner. Finally then, Minister, how would you feel about another Tauranga by-election this term? No, thank you.
That is Associate Education Minister Jan Tanetti. After the break on Q&A, slips making slop on the roads, which many Wellington ratepayers reckon is a slap in the face. Kia ora, welcome back. While the worst of the flooding in the last few weeks has been focused at, at the top of Te Wai Ponamu, the South Island, the capital has faced chaos this winter, with hillsides crumbling, roads blocked by debris and houses evacuated. And there's a strong likelihood Wellington may have even worse in store. Here's Fena Owen. Most people prefer flat land for their homes, but in Wellington at least, what was available quickly became crowded. So home builders took to the hills. And some hills were sliced through for access, like the Swadestown cutting. 80 years on, traffic crawls through the same cutting. Above it, an old home clings to the edge of a landslide. The earthworks proudly accomplished in the first half of last century are now failing against a disrupted climate. In 2022, the harbour city on the hills is now Slip City. This is a cutting, a typical yep. Wellington road where they've, they've made a cutting I through. I kind of too typical because it's yeah. pretty steep. On the terrace, engineering geologist Dr Chris Massey is talking us through another landslide and another threatened property. You can see where there's the like, kind of bits of um, darker materials, the kind of like modified ground. We kind of call it fill, so it's kind of like where people have cut and maybe... So what, what you tend to do when you, when you build a house on a slope is you tend to cut it and then you fill. So do you, do you know what I mean? So yeah, you, yeah. you kind of cut the upslope side yeah. and then you take that material and you put it on the downslope side. Steep hillsides are being ironed out. The tops are scraped off and pushed into the valleys. It must be filled to have actually just, just yeah, slipped look, away like what, this. What we think is it's filled from the creation of the roads and the, and the housing platforms behind us. It's obviously created a, a sports field, you know, 60, 70 years ago. At a large landslide in Wilton, Wellington's Mayor Andy Foster is keen to put the capital's landslide woes into perspective. My heart really goes out to the people of Nelson and Marlborough in the top of the south, which uh, the damage that you've seen there is absolutely horrendous. In Wellington, 13 households are still unable to return home. What's your advice to concerned homeowners or tenants in a property where they think might be under threat? Yeah, I, I'm just keep an eye on things like doors doors, windows if they start sticking or, you know, kind of windows you can't open them. If you start seeing kind of like uh, bulges or, or kind of changes around the property, like retaining walls, little cracks, things like that. All over the city, retaining walls have given way. Right next to this slip in Calvin, a new retaining wall has been constructed under what are now stricter building codes, but they will still come under the spotlight. One of the things I've asked our uh, management to, to look at is to, to review the whole uh, planning around our retaining walls and to see whether there are any other areas which are particular concerns. The vulnerability of retaining walls is graphically illustrated in this Melrose Street. got quite a fright when I saw it. Mayoral candidate Tori Farno has worked closely with Climate Change Minister James Shaw and wants to build, or rebuild, a resilient Wellington. So the Mayor's role uh, with the Minister for Climate Change, as well as Minister for the Environment, is incredibly crucial. Uh, we're going to need a Mayor to really lobby on behalf of Wellington to ensure we get that support and funding needed uh, to help, well, to prevent this from happening again. 
While these property owners are feeling the sharp end of the city's landslide events, others are affected by road closures. This road is one of the two main access routes into the suburb of Karori, closed because of the landslides all up and down it, and uh, the households above have been evacuated. On average, over July-August, council crews are clearing up around 100 slips that cover at least one road lane. This winter, they've been called out to clean up 400 slips. In Melrose, they're starting to clear away the debris. It's the cumulative effect of all that rain together that has increased the groundwater levels within the slope but it's also increased the weight of the material in the slope because you add water to the dry ground, you make it heavier, yeah? it's, it, it, the weight changes. In a programme called Dobbiner Landslide, GNS want people to report any slips. It helps them match that with rainfall data so that they have a better chance of predicting when a landslide might be triggered. As one of our leading landslide experts, Dr Massey is expecting to be kept busy. So are insurers. In fact, the head of the New Zealand Insurance Council, Tim Grafton, is issuing a warning. If we sit on our hands and do nothing to reduce risk, uh, then obviously insurance has a role to respond in terms of pricing that risk. So it's very important for New Zealand to stand up and demonstrate how we are adapting and reducing the risks uh, whether that's in our building construction around earthquake risks or in terms of climate change, how we are responding to reduce the risks of the impacts. More rain is forecast next week for Nelson and the capital. On Friday, Niwa will release its winter rainfall statistics, which are expected to break records. Fina Owen with that report. Coming up on Q&A, the debate over whether Māori and Pacifica students should be given preferential admission to medical school. Dunedin's new Dean of Medicine speaks from personal experience. Hōki mai we welcome back. The Defence Force has begun contacting New Zealand soldiers on unpaid leave to remind them they're not allowed to fight in Ukraine. It comes after New Zealand soldier Dominic Abelin was killed while fighting there this week. Journalist Tom Much is in the Donbass region of Ukraine and I started by asking him how common it is to come across fellow New Zealanders in Ukraine right now. I mean, it's not the most common thing in the world. I think the New Zealand government uh, estimated that there were about 15 to 20 who stayed after the Russians invaded in February. However, there are a few trickling back in. Most are here. Either they were former expats who've returned. There are a couple I know who are uh, of Ukrainian origin but lived in New Zealand who've come back to help out and support with whatever skills they can. And, yes, there are a number believed to be you know, between about a dozen and 20 who are fighting in, uh, you know, in the International Legion or in various regiments of the Ukrainian army. And, of course, a handful of journalists uh, have been in and out. I've been here for most of the time, but there's been a few other correspondents mm. here who cycled in and out as well. Dominic Eberlin was fighting whilst on unpaid leave from his role in the New Zealand Defence Force. Among the international people who are fighting against the Russian forces... How common is it that they are actually members of their own nation's armies? 
So almost uh, to be actually, you can't just rock up and, to, and, you know, get a place in the International Legion. There have been quite a large number of people who've been turned away. You are expected to have previous military experience, uh, definitely preferably previous combat experience. And so it's very common to find people. It's probably more likely to find people who have retired from their own militaries, but it's definitely not unheard of. However, as you've mentioned to me, there are a number of militaries that do have a blanket ban on their troops serving in Ukraine. It's unclear to what extent those bans would be enforced when those service people returned home. Yeah, I mean, aside from the significant personal tragedy, it is, it is interesting to consider the geopolitical ramifications here. Would Russia see a distinction between a New Zealand soldier who has chosen to go to Ukraine on unpaid leave and join a foreign legion and a New Zealand soldier who serves in our military? Look, so I very much doubt the Russians would make a major distinction. Uh, what they do with uh, foreign legion soldiers is they usually portray them as foreign mercenaries who are not legitimate combatants in their eyes that means that they are not allowed they are allowed to not treat them as prisoners of war under the geneva conventions that's what we've seen that they've done with a number of the british soldiers who were mariupol defenders who were captured at the very end of that siege uh basically the russians will just take it as whatever suits their propaganda purposes the best and it sometimes suits their propaganda purposes to have this idea that the whole world is against them and so they will use whichever one suits them. Yeah, so, so in a worst-case scenario, if there are New Zealand soldiers who have taken leave and choose to continue fighting in Ukraine despite requests from the New Zealand Defence Force, if they were to be captured by Russian forces, we have the potential for a really serious geopolitical situation. Well, the difficulty is, is that also is that the Russians would not officially say that they've captured them. They're likely to hand them over to their proxies in the Donetsk and Luhansk yeah. People's Republics. And the attempt what, uh, that will be to try and get the New Zealand government to negotiate with those republics, thereby giving them some form of international legitimacy. So that's where a lot of thorny issues are coming into, particularly with the examples of the mm. British soldiers that I mentioned before. And, Tom, you're in the Donbass at the moment. From the experience you have on the ground, why are these international soldiers joining the fight? So I spoke to one volunteer just before I got on the phone with you, and there's a wide variety of reasons. But the most common one that I have heard is that people say, say that they see what's going on and they think it's horrific and that they have the skills to help and defend this sort of very kind of proud nation in the best way they can. And for, for many people, particularly military or ex-military, they see this as the most important fight of the century and that they want to be there for to support in whatever way they can. That is New Zealand journalist Tom Much. Stick around. Q&A is back after the break. Joe Baxter was admitted to study medicine at Auckland University in the early days of the uni's MAPIS scheme, an affirmative action programme designed to increase the number of Māori and Pacifica in the health workforce. She was made to feel unworthy almost every day told the university was taking a real gamble on her. Well, a few decades on, Professor Joe Baxter has just been appointed Dean of Dunedin's Medical School. 
It's at a time when Otago University's affirmative action admissions programme has been the subject of debate and legal challenges and the healthcare system is at the centre of the pandemic response and massive reforms. So, nor um, te taipotene aho. So, um, I'm originally from the west coast of the South Island, nor te taipotene. I whakapapa to um, Poutene Ngaitahu, and my marae is uh, in Bruce Bay, which is about halfway between Haast and Fox Glacier. So, mum's from South Westland, my, my dad's from Hokitika, and I grew up uh, in my primary school days up and down the west coast, and also lived in Golden Bay for a while. Then moved to Picton, and spent, did my high school time in Picton, so I'm a, a South Islander, or Te Waipaunamu person. Um, my other iwi is Ngāti Apa Ki Tour, which is um, a to the Upper South Island as well. So very much grew up small town, semi-rural, community-based um, South Island in the 1960s and 70s, um, and then ended up at medical school in the early 1980s. So it's actually 40 years ago this year that I started medical school in Auckland. Um, so I went from Picton to Auckland and I was first in my family to go to university um, and in my extended family. And it wasn't usual from Picton for many people to be going to university. So I had a Māori teacher by the name of Monty Ohia, who actually eventually ended up becoming a Māori Party MP. But he was a real champion for Māori education. And in his role as a Māori teacher in Picton, he engaged with all of the Māori students and the people in his class. And he encouraged us to think that we could be more than um, the pathways that were often set for us um, coming and picked, and it was the freezing works, the railways, the ferries, and actually encouraged us to be thinking about what else. And as part of those conversations, um, medical school came up for me, and uh, he was instrumental in engaging with Auckland Medical School to get information and help me make my application. I know it's a cliche, but isn't it amazing how, um, you know, a teacher's influence can end up ha like having a Really significant Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, and I think later on when I, in the university as I've had roles in supporting pathways for Māori students and also students from low decile schools, another programme that we've been running um, into and through um, health sciences at mm. the university, I've always had that understanding that it's very easy for people to underestimate um, the potential in people because they look at background factors and make an assumption about what your destiny is or ought to be. Um, and yet I see so many amazing young people who have incredible potential, but it's not shown up in the fact that they've been to the best schools or the flashiest schools or um, had the backgrounds that have had them on trajectories into university but that they, many of them come with stories of similar stories. Someone really noticed their uh, potential um, or they happen to have in their school an approach to actually really working with students. So unfortunately it's not consistent across all of our education that students are all kind of seen to have that kind of potential. So we see, also see students who turn up who are there despite um, the education that they've had where people have s told them they're on a trajectory to something like um, 
humanities because yeah. you know, we're probably naturally good at music or you know some of that stereotyped stuff that people have it still sits there in some educational spaces. It's still there. Yeah I've been really interested in the debate about streaming in schools and you may be aware that there's been a lot of thinking around whether or not streaming in schools is contributing to inequity and in particular contributing to Māori inequity and I think that some of this determining people's trajectories right from year nine for instance when they come into high school where they might be saying you're going to be in this class and you're going to be in this class and in this class you get the teachers that are going to really push you and extend you and in this class you might get unit standards and will be training you to potentially you know limp your way through school but come out the other end assuming that that's your trajectory and I think that um, for me um, certainly I think unless there is something to disrupt that the tendency of the system is to still differentiate people on the basis of quite early on assumptions about their likelihood of you know where they're going to end up later on and of course Māori and end up on the, the wrong end of that I think often yeah. in the educational sector. It's interesting you bring the subject up because over the last decade or so the university has, a, has had a policy called Mirror on Society. I know the name has recently yeah. been changed and the policy has been adjusted a little bit but at times it's been a really controversial mm. policy because it is essentially looking at promoting pathways for underrepresented mm. communities yeah. into the health workforce in New Zealand. So proactively finding space for Māori, Pacifica and rural students. Yeah. What have you made of the way the debate around that policy has been held? Have you learnt anything from it? I absolutely, I think I learnt a lot and I, I suppose for me having been engaged with the Mirror on Society policy it seemed to be a really practical approach to ensuring that we were having a workforce that was coming more close to reflecting the people in our communities and our society but also more likely to be able to meet those needs and influence the health sector so so having a policy that looked at one part of that which is how do we admit people into our programs and taking into account that we could do something different to shift some of that it seemed to me quite practical, quite a, an important, so that we didn't end up with a health workforce that was largely made out of people who'd only been to high decile schools, who had had the advantage of elite level education, who were then coming out to be our health professionals. So I think what I learnt in watching the reaction and some of the challenges that came up around the time of the Mirror on Society was that I learnt that you can't ever get complacent. What I believed to be an exceptionally good thing that ought to be understandable mm. and considered quite appropriate for us as a society um, was not thought of in the same way by a number of people or some people. So I learned not to get complacent. I also learned something really positive which was that the reaction to what happened over the mirror on society and the suggestion that we should potentially cap the number of Māori and Pacific um, and those equity groups so that we didn't end up with too many. Mm. Um, that suggestion, the backlash to that suggestion didn't just come from Māori but we, I saw letters from 
things like the medical council, the medical colleges, many of the health professions, the health sector, um, all sorts of groups came out and said this is not an appropriate thing to do. So what we saw was that the support for it was widespread. Every year I've been um, able to watch our Māori students graduating um, into all of their different programs, pharmacy, physio, um, medicine, dentistry, all of those areas, and the pride that their families have for them. Um, is immense and so each of those people is not just heading out into the workforce for hopefully the next 40 odd years to go do fabulous things but they're also um, providing a real meaningful example in their own whanau and communities of people who have engaged with education come out the other end and of course we have to remember that only between two and five percent of most of our health professionals in New Zealand registered health professionals are Māori and medicine has only just gone clocked over four percent of doctors in New Zealand being Māori so even with um, increases to the point where we're getting about 20% of our students being Māori in Auckland, similar. We're still not touching the sides. What do you say to, then to, 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 to people who still feel that it is fundamentally unfair? What do you say to people who, who say, Joe, it is racist for a university to have an affirmative policy that prioritises one ethnic group over another? Um, well, it's really tricky because I think... Um, Often it's about the frame within which people understand an issue. And so when people only see the issue is about um, person X happens to have a 95% average over seven science-based papers as being therefore having more of a right to have a place in medical school than someone who... Um, has had a very different set of opportunities through their education and a different set of experiences in coming to university um, and then getting a different outcome, which may not quite be the upper 90% averages. Um, so when they see that as a, a fairness issue, they're not looking at the wider issues of fairness within society. Is it fair that in order to be best prepared to be able to get those kind of marks in health science first year, you probably need to have gone to a very high decile school. You need to have done all of the sciences to a very high level. You need to be able to afford to live in a hostel or a, a college um, when you come to university so that you are being supported and getting those extra chutes. Um, so having all of those advantages so that you're likely to end up at the top of the pile, and I think people don't necessarily see those as fairness issues. I wonder if the policy also says something about the purpose of the school itself, yeah. Yeah. and the school exists through this policy to actually serve New Zealand rather than to serve individual yes. students. Yeah, and, and absolutely, and I think if we think about education and health and the interface of education and health, yeah. we're at a really, we have a really amazing opportunity when we think about equity, to be able to have wins in both. And so being able to understand that if we engage with equity, equitable educational outcomes, that that will support e equitable health outcomes, um, then we're really dealing with a societal good mm. that is much broader 
than, as you say, an individual focus. Do you have experience of um, non-Māori coming to med school and going through a personal transformation when they are exposed to some of the inequities in our society for the first time? I've been really impressed with the level of engagement and support that the non-Māori students have for Hawara Māori as a subject, but also as something that they want to aspire to get right as clinicians down the line. And so we teach from a really strengths-based way. So our goal for our graduates is they come out being awesome clinicians or awesome doctors or whatever profession they're doing. Mm. And that in order to be a good doctor, you also have to be a good doctor for Māori. So what does that look like? And when they recognise that this is about being a good doctor, um, it's not about politics, it's not about anything else, it's about being good at what you do, then they they fully engage. And I think some of the students who have aha moments are ones that have had backgrounds where, again, the family discourse about things Māori has often been very narrowly framed and very deficit. And so they may come to medical school having um, been raised in a family where um, there's a lot of negative... Um, framing of Māori as being well, if they don't work hard enough, they shouldn't be here, those kinds of things, come into the medical school space. And then they're surrounded, one, by now about 20% of the students in their class will be Māori and about 10% Pacific, so that's that's a real challenge. It may be the most Māori people they've ever been exposed to is in their own med school class. And then in the teaching, they learn that actually there are things you're going to need to know and do that will stand you in good stead when you graduate. And I think, you know, it appeals to a positive motivation. And I think within that, people drop some of those preconceived things as they start to engage. Do you have any views on the extent to which we should be relying on foreign workforce? I think one of the challenges is that the health workforce space is quite a big landscape and it has many features to it mm. and some of those features include migrant workers coming in, some of them include the pipeline that we have um, coming through from our educational facilities, some of them include what the workforce is like and the, the way that that we're losing people because of the nature of the work and the pressure and tension. So, so I think it's really difficult to pinpoint one bit or the other. Um, and I think what we haven't had nationally is a really good oversight of that landscape or a plan to actually then say, right, we really want to really enhance our nursing workforce we have a number of ways we can be doing that. Some of it is through migration, some of it is through getting our pipeline and growing our own, some of it is to really protecting our workers so they don't leave and some... So, so I, I suppose it's not so... I don't have such a simple thing. I would love to have... A, a, so, for instance, I think in medicine, about half of our current medical workforce is international and about is, is internationally trained, and about yeah. half is is locally is New Zealand trained. It's um, very high. It is, um, and um, so we have we have been running like that mm. for ever. And then the other thing is also ensuring that all people, no matter where they've been trained, have a really really high level of understanding yeah. of 
of the environment they're working in, and I think a lot more can be done in that space as well. Mm. I don't think we're very good at doing really meaningful orientation. Like people come here one day and they might have a few days max orientation, and then they're on the wards. Yeah. And certainly from a Māori perspective, I've had um, conversations with some of our internationally trained people, colleagues, who really have been hanging out for a much more um, in-depth and meaningful understanding of the cultural context within which we work. Could we just double the number of students we teach? Um, well, I think one of the things is because we teach programmes that interface with the health sector, there's actually a whole lot of contextual issues that you would need to um, sort out to make that work. Could just double the role overnight, it's not yeah, quite that simple. Yeah, not quite that simple. And I think some of it is because it's such an experiential learning, yeah. you know, you don't learn to be a doctor by theory, you're mm. actually out there. And then you've got to have enough of the kind of right kinds of learning experiences that you're actually learning that. And so you have to yeah. navigate where and how that would all happen. So I think conversations about growing the pipeline um, are happening, but I think it really involves a close relationship between health and education. Yeah. What has to happen with the health reforms for us to achieve the aspirations? Um, I actually think that we have to be optimistic. I've really been thinking, if we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to keep getting what we've always got. So we, we needed to do something differently having 20 DHBs all trying their absolute best to meet the needs of their communities, but then in order to do that, mm. it meant that we weren't connecting between them and one DHB would have a really awesome initiative that was making a difference, but it was never shared. So, so I think being able to step away and think, let's really commit to making this work. Mm. So probably the issue for me, which concerns me, is the rhetoric of... Um, well, if you know, if there's a change of government, different political parties saying, "Well, we would, we would turn that, we would not do that, or we would get rid of the Māori, the Māori Health Authority." Mm. Um, and I think, gosh, it's assuming that the Māori Health Authority only exists as a political thing, when in fact, uh, for Māori and for Māori health providers, it sits there as a very pragmatic potential approach to actually developing and delivering services that will get us the outcomes that we want. Um, so the idea that a party would be framing it as existing to meet a political purpose, I think um, it, it suggests some soul-searching may be required as to what's underlying that framing of that issue. Uh, because it, um, even if you were to take the politics away and even if people thought we don't want to do special privilege, you still can't take away the fact that here's an organisation that has the opportunity to provide quality um, commissioning and quality care and to, to negate that I think is a, is a problem. Professor Joe Baxter, the new Dean of Dunedin's Medical School. Hey, our Q&A. Q&A is back after the break. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday.
Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.